Well, good morning and happy Easter to all of you. Uh, today we celebrate that uh, Christ is not on the cross, he is not in the tomb, but he is risen. And the church says when we say he is risen uh, historically, he is risen indeed. So let's try that again. He is risen. Wonderful. Um, so this is a great day being celebrated by churches uh, all over the world, and, uh, and we're excited to be doing that ourselves here. A um, couple things. Uh, one is uh, Terry had mentioned that there is a card in the seat back in front of you. If you're interested in communications from LifeSpring, that's a great place to, uh, to mark that, or baptism or anything else, and also prayer. We are a church that prays for people, so if you'd like prayer, that's a great place to write it down. And then later we'll be uh, passing around a basket. You can put it in that basket um, at that time. Um, and then um, one other little uh, piece here, and if, if you would just advance that slide, I want to let you know uh, what's going to be taking place in the weeks ahead. That we are going to be uh, currently, of course, we're celebrating Easter, but next week and in the, in the following weeks, we're going to be going through a series called Kings and Kingdoms, and then we'll be following uh, that up with Ezra and Nehemiah, taking a, a broad view of the historical books of the Bible. And what that means is if you hang out with us a little bit, uh, you're going to learn how a, a huge section of the Old Testament connects with your Christian faith. I encourage you to, to come and bring a friend. Um, so let's go ahead and bow our heads and, uh, and we'll pray and uh, get into the Easter message. Father, this morning we come to you in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus the Christ, acknowledging that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for sending Jesus to the earth for your glory and our benefit. As we worship you this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Father, sometimes our hearts go astray. We ask you to forgive us for loving the things of this world more than you who made them. Thank you that we are forgiven in Christ. We ask that you would reorder our affections so that we love you more than anything else. We pray for our community, that you would bless the police and firemen and women and village trustees, school leaders, business leaders, every household, that all might know you and follow you. We pray that you would repair broken marriages and mend relationships that are strained, that you would bring revival. Help us to be salt and light to those who live here. We ask that this church would be a place of nurture, love, and worship. And we pray boldly that LifeSpring would be ascending church, that from this place in northern Illinois, you would bring great blessing upon the world. As Christians celebrate Easter throughout the world, we pray for your blessing upon them, and especially for our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka, where churches and hotels have just been bombed. That you would comfort those who suffer and bring justice. Father, as we, as we open your word now, we ask you to illuminate our minds and our hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see through your spirit. The name of Jesus be praised. Amen. Well, you know that today is Easter, and you know that Jesus died on a wooden cross many years ago, and you know that he rose from the dead, and you might know that Easter is linked to, historically to Passover, which is a Jewish celebration, um, but what else do you know about Easter? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, on, on, or last week, on Palm Sunday, we went and uh, asked a couple trivia questions in regard to uh, Palm Sunday. I have a few 
questions uh, in regard to Easter here. So first question, upon Jesus' death, uh, what ripped from top to bottom? And you can answer this out loud if you like. The curtain. The curtain. Ah, this is good. All right. So far, we're doing really well. Uh, so the curtain ripped from top to bottom. Now, second question, uh, where uh, did Jesus' disciples see him first, Jerusalem or Galilee? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> Jerusalem. All right, guys. So here's, here's the deal on, on this particular one. Matthew has a very short account of what took place, and so he skips over a lot of stuff and summarizes to make his point. Um, but if you read the longer accounts, like Luke, we'll find out that first Jesus actually was in and around Jerusalem, then the disciples met him in Galilee, and then he sent him to Jerusalem again. Trick question. All right, let's see if you get number three. Um, so when did Jesus ascend into heaven? And we'll just say, how many days after Jesus' resurrection did he ascend into heaven? Now you're all nervous, aren't you? <laughs> Let's try it again. Okay, loud. Whoever, whoever's loudest wins. 40. 40. Okay, 40. Yeah, 40 is good. Uh-huh. And... Okay, so this, is, this also is just a tiny, tiny trick question. Uh, so let's go to the next. Yeah, we got it. Uh, so when did the Holy Spirit come to Christians? Was it in the Old Testament? When Jesus was resurrected or 50 days after Jesus' resurrection? 50 days. Yeah, that's right. I got a couple of 50 days. So um, the Holy Spirit did come upon people in the Old Testament, but came upon them definitively and lastingly in the New Testament. And, uh, and it was um, 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven or 50 days after his resurrection. That's why we call that day Pentecost. It means 50 days. All right, cool. Well, this is great. I have to do this again sometime. Um, <laughs> So when most Christians think of Easter, they think of the cross and they think of the empty tomb. These are the two great pictures of Easter. And, and this is uh, as it should be, that the Holy Week starts with Palm Sunday and proceeds with, through with the cross and the empty tomb. And that, that's what uh, churches celebrate year after year. But did you know that the redemptive story of Christ's resurrection actually be, uh, began long before empty tomb, long before the cross, long before Palm Sunday, long before the, the, the life, a human life and ministry of Jesus, that uh, on the very day that the first man and woman fell from grace in the garden, God promised to redeem them, and he promised to redeem all humanity. And so the redemptive thread of God's salvation actually begins in Genesis 3, and it weaves uh, through book after book in the Old Testament, through the Pentateuch, through the historical books, through the wisdom literature, through the prophets, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, and the rest of them, until it reaches the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we touched upon that redemptive thread that leads to Christ this morning when we read uh, the prophet Ezekiel. Now, Picture Ezekiel, uh, or imagine you are Ezekiel, standing in the valley full of bones. And there's a burning question on your mind, can these bones live? 
Now, anybody read Ezekiel lately? Not, not a lot of you. So if, if you were to start reading the book of Ezekiel and you read chapter after chapter after chapter, you might become quite depressed with those first 36 chapters because it is, it's depressing. It is the story of God saying, Israel, you're unfaithful and I'm going to judge you and I'm going to judge the nations surrounding you. And by the time you get through those 36 chapters, you're like, oh, something's got to happen here. And it does in chapter 37, which we read. So Ezekiel actually experienced all this, um, and so it's, it's even weightier on him. And so uh, suffering, captivity, torture, death, finally Ezekiel's in this valley of dry bones, and the situation for God's people is desperate. These bones are exceedingly dry and lifeless, and the Spirit of God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel looks on this valley of death, and he goes, oh, Lord God, you know. And then God commanded Ezekiel, tell these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. And so Ezekiel speaks to the bones, he prophesies the bones as God commands him to, and he hears this clattering. And the bones are coming together, bone on bone, and they're, and they're standing assembled, they're reconstituted, and then God breathes life into them, and they're reanimated, and there are the people of God, reconstituted, reanimated. God has breathed life into this valley of dry bones. Well, why do I tell the story? So, first of all, and you're like, on oh, Easter or Sunday, dry bones, I don't know. Yeah, but what, what, is this a good idea or not? Um, this is the thread of redemption that weaves through the Old Testament that I was describing up to the cross. So that's one reason why I tell the story. But the second, probably more importantly, is because the Valley of Dry Bones might also be part of your story. I've been a pastor for about 10 years now, and I've spoken with plenty of people who think that they, or feel that they have been in the Valley of Dry Bones. A woman who came to me with alcohol and drug addictions wearing a probationary bracelet. A man with a verbally abusive wife, struggling with his own addictions, learning to love his gay son. An older man on his own, rejected by his family. A young woman with a son and an abusive boyfriend. A homeless woman with no place to go. Men and women who struggle with their sexuality, with drugs, alcohol, difficult marriages, problems in parenting, problems with children, problems at work, lack of resources, terminal disease, cancer, sometimes dark family histories that they think they'll never be free of. And it's the Valley of Dry Bones. And people want to know, will God breathe life into my situation? Can these bones live? Have you been in that valley, or do you know someone who's there maybe right now? So the Easter story offers us some compelling reasons to be able to answer that question with a yes. God can and will breathe life into this lifeless situation. And we're going to look at the answer to that through these pictures of Easter, the cross, and the empty tomb. 
So first, the cross. If ever there was a picture that seemed like the Valley of Dry Bones, it was the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God incarnate, embodiment of love and truth, mocked, tortured, and killed. Valley of Dry Bones. Matthew 27.50 tells us that in the end, Jesus yielded his spirit. Uh, that at, the moment, at that moment that he yielded his spirit, the earth shook, the temple was torn in two, that saints came out of their graves, a Roman centurion bore witness that Jesus was the son of God. Um, there were signs of redemption in this valley of death. But the image of the torn curtain is intriguing, and that's where we're going to spend some time here. There are other things that we could focus on, but when Jesus yielded his spirit, the temple curtain tore in two from top to bottom. This is really significant. So what's the significance? Well, this curtain that tore from top to bottom was the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And the, mo the most holy place, or the holy of holies, was the place where God was said to dwell. So the temple and the curtain was the veil and the separation between God and humanity. It was a separator. And no one could enter the holy of holies except for the high priest once a year and with blood. And if you were to go around the 40 or so acre temple complex, uh, there is a succeeding circle of rings on where people could go. There were places where um, anybody could go, places where um, no one except Jews could go, places where no one except men could go, places where no one except priests could go, places, the place where only God could go, and that was the Holy of Holies. And so the curtain between the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies uh, was massive. It was really, really big. And uh, reading an excerpt from um, a 2014 article, Israel Today, I'm sure you've been reading that uh, lately, um, some women were trying to recreate this curtain. It gives you an idea of the size and immensity of this project. So this is an ex excerpt from that article. The size of the veil itself, measuring 20 meters high, 10 meters wide, and 10 centimeters thick, is a project of immense complexity in of itself. So we're talking you know, 20 meters high, over 60 feet high, over 30 feet wide, four inches thick. It's a big curtain. Uh, the making of the veil is therefore going to be a long learning process of trial and error. One of the more unique challenges is to weave the faces of the cherubim so that it is an eagle face on one side and a bull's face on the other side. Um, another aforementioned production of exotic colors needed for the veil uh, while the project is beset by in seemingly insurmountable obstacles already in its infancy, the women believe they were able to produce a veil that will pass the scrutiny of the rabbis. So the curtain's huge, it's massive, it's thick, it's big, and for it to be ripped from top to bottom is no small thing. This is a very large separator between God and man. And the rending of the curtain and the death of Jesus on the cross were somehow connected. How? How are those two things connected? Well, the best explanation on how the cross and curtain were connected and why God tore the curtain, I believe, comes from the Bible itself, from the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by the new and living way, 
he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. In other words, we're entering the Holy of Holies into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. So if we remember this redemptive thread that we're talking about, um, we might say, um, what is God redeeming us from? And if I were to ask you, what is God redeeming us from? You might say evil, sin, death, all those sorts of things. But those are related to one huge big problem that we are separated from God. We are creatures made to be in relationship with God, but we've been separated from God. It's a big problem that causes a lot of other problems in our lives. Because of our sin, we've been separated from God, but we're made to be in a relationship with him. So being separated with God, we try to satisfy ourselves with other things that God has made. And so we try and satisfy ourselves with food and clothing and relationships with other people and uh, job satisfaction and, and children and parents. And, and we try to satisfy ourselves wholly with those things, but in the end, they're not enough. And you might know, if you're a shopper, you go into the shopping mall and you get satisfaction. You go buy something and everything feels great for a little while. And then that kind of calms down and you've got to go do it again. And that's sort of our satisfaction uh, in created things. We're meant to be satisfied wholly by God, but we're separated from God. We can only satisfy ourselves by the stuff God has made. And so if you see the problem... Satisfaction or separation from God means that we must be satisfied by creation alone, but we were made for more. You and I were made for more than that. And so God made us for himself, but we couldn't be with him. And so that curtain separating us from God had to be torn. It had to be. And it was torn by whom was torn from top to bottom. It was torn by God himself. But it was torn not because that temple curtain was physically torn. That was just indicating a greater truth that God would tear the separation between himself and us by allowing all of our sins to be laid on Jesus. And as Hebrew notes, Jesus' body is the true curtain of separation that was torn. That's what enables us to pass into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, and have a relationship with him. And so, as Hebrews says, we can now boldly enter the sanctuary where no one's been allowed through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. By the way, if you are interested in the Old Testament and you've struggled to read through it, it is a hard book to read because it's highly contextualized and there are different parts that are difficult. The book of Hebrews is much shorter and it is the best commentary on Old Testament uh, bar none. So I encourage you to, to, to dive into that if you want to learn more. But hang on to this. The cross ended the separation between God and people through the blood of Jesus. We can now be together with God. That's a main point we need to hang on to. Cross ended the separation between God and us so we can be in God's presence in relationship with him. Okay, so we said there's a second picture, and that's the picture of the empty tomb. Now, Matthew's account, we already noted, is a little punchy. It's 
tight, it's condensed, it makes certain points, it doesn't give us all the details. Uh, so it's punchy, bringing events of a longer narrative together in just a few verses. Uh, Matthew's not too concerned about the reader understanding about time elapsed or some of the details provided in Luke's account. That's in Luke's account. But briefly, here's what took place. On the third day, early in the morning, before it was fully light, uh, some women were preparing spices to finish embalming Jesus' body. And so uh, they got those spices and all those things that are, they're actually quite heavy. And there were a group of women that were going to go do this. Now, uh, Matthew's account mentions the two Marys by name, but there were more if we go into the other account. There were a, a, a pretty large group of women. They were going to go take care of Jesus' body. And so uh, on the way over there, they're wondering uh, how they're going to move the stone because in that day the, the, uh, there was a round stone, you might have seen pictures of it, that it, uh, fits into a groove and it rolls in, seals off the tomb, and that would be very heavy to move and they wouldn't be able to move that themselves. They're wondering how they're going to do this. But God had that part figured out. There was an earthquake Angels appeared, guards fled, the tomb was open, and by the time the women arrived at the empty tomb, it was attended by an awe-inspiring heavenly being, an angel. And that would have been terribly frightening for them. And this angel, the word angel, by the way, means messenger, and this angel had a message for the women. So first, Jesus was not in the tomb. He had risen. They should not go looking for Jesus among the dead. Jesus was alive. They should not go looking for Jesus in the Valley of Dry Bones because Jesus was reconstituted and reanimated. Jesus was alive. Second, the angel reassured the women that they should not fear, although they were very afraid, but instead they should examine the evidence and tell the disciples what they had seen. In other words, they should come and see, and then they should go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. So the women left the tomb, overwhelmed with joy and fear, to go tell the disciples. But on the way to tell the disciples, they came along and saw Jesus. And they fell at his feet, and Jesus basically repeated the message of the angel. Now that they had seen him, they, had, they did the come and see thing, they experienced him, they saw that Jesus was alive, they should go and tell and they're gonna go and tell the disciples. And in Matthew it says, go and tell, I'll meet them in Galilee. Now we know from the other accounts, yes indeed, they do go meet him in Galilee, but there's a whole scene in Jerusalem that elapses in the meantime, there's a road to Emmaus, there's all sorts of other things that take place. But right here, Matthew's point is um, driving towards Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is the Great Commission, and he wants to bring it all together into, really, Come and see, all authority has been given to me. Now go and tell. Now, one of the questions that people ask themselves is, can I trust this story? And people have voiced various theories about it, that uh, Jesus may never have been buried. Perhaps his body was eaten by dogs. Um, but that would have been easy for the religious authorities to point out if it were true. People would have seen that. Um, but some claim that Jesus wasn't all the way dead. Sort of like the Princess Bride, have you seen that? He was only mostly dead. And the, uh, the Romans didn't quite know how to, to 
tell if somebody was dead or not. But the Romans were experts at killing. And not only that, when the soldiers pierced Jesus, there was blood and water that came out, which indicated that Jesus had experienced hypovolemic shock, which meant fluid would gather in a sack around his heart and lungs. The soldier pierced uh, both the lungs and the heart. Blood and water flowed out, just as it is recorded in John. So in Jesus' day, the authorities had another theory, uh, that the disciples stole Jesus' body, which, incidentally, if Jesus' body had been eaten by dogs, the authorities wouldn't be saying that Jesus, the disciples stole his body. Um, but if they had stolen his body, would they have left the grave clothes, as noted in the Gospel of John, or, uh, huge, would all these people be willing to be martyred for a lie? People died for this story. They believed it was true. They had witnessed it and seen it. I believe the best explanation is that given in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus died on that cross and was buried, and the third day he rose in fulfillment of the scriptures. Why shouldn't we believe that God who, uh, who constituted and animated us, he made us beings and he gave us life, he breathed, he breathed life into us, why we, shouldn't we believe that he can reconstitute and reanimate us? Why shouldn't we believe that the God who made us out of clay and breathed life into us actually would bring us back to life and breathe life back into us? So there are many other things we could talk about regarding the resurrection in Matthew uh, we don't read about uh, the disciples on the road to uh, Emmaus. We don't read about doubting Thomas or the disciples locked in the room, huddled in fear. We don't learn that the disciples were unwilling to accept the women's testimony or what happened at the tomb. Uh, none of these items are shared with us, not because they didn't happen. And investigators and reporters know that in examining more than one account, uh, this is a more reliable testimony when the, when the main story is true and there are different variations because different people see things and they focus on different things in any given story, even though those different accounts are true. There should be differences, otherwise there's collusion. So this morning, what we are focusing on is how God breathes life into dry bones. And so, Back to that redemptive thread, um, is the valley of dry bones your experience or the experience of somebody you know? Uh, the cross and the curtain help us to understand that there is no longer a separation between us and God or there need not be one. Uh, the empty tomb helps us to understand that for Christians, death is not the end. And how does that help us? Well, it helps us to know that we were made for more. You know, um, there are so many things that we do and so many things that we don't do because we don't think of ourselves in the right way. We don't think about our identity in the way that we should, but God created us as his creatures to be in a relationship with him forever. That's amazing. It's huge. And it doesn't mean that our struggles aren't real, but it does mean that God meets us in our struggles and it, and it also means that who we are depends upon whose we are. That our identity is rooted in our sense of belonging. And if we think we're nothing, which some of us might, then that is going to lead us into destructive behavior. 
Or if we think we're everything, where some of us might, that also will lead us into destructive behavior. But if we think that God is everything, that we belong to him, that provides a foundation for every other point in our life. Who we are depends upon whose we are. And so, if you belong to Christ, you are a new creation. That God can breathe that life into those dry bones and you can live. That on experiencing that new life, after coming and seeing, we can go and tell. And that's what we're commanded to do as Christians. We're commanded to come and see what the Lord has done for us. And then we're commanded to go and tell. Well, please uh, bow your heads with me, Father. We thank you for uh, the hope that we have in Christ. It is the hope of a new creation. Uh, if anyone here has not experienced that redemption in Christ, we pray that they would give their life over to you uh, in, in hoping and faith and trust and in, in just believing that you can bring life to lifeless situations. And Lord, um, for thus, those of us who do know you and have known you, I pray that we would trust you in the difficult situations that you've given us, and also that we would go and tell, that we would be bold, even though we may be afraid, that we would be bold for you. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as we're about to experience this time of uh, the Lord's Supper, I uh, pray for your blessing upon it, that your Holy Spirit would meet with each of us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.